All right, what we're going to do now is uh, begin a journey through the Bible to where we just start in Genesis and we go all the way to Revelation. Uh, I've done this before in terms of overviews, but I've never actually done it in terms of going passage by passage just all the way through in chronological order. Of course, Jeff and I teach through books, uh, but we, you know, they're, they're not in order. And so uh, I thought what we do and what I was asked to do is maybe just start in Genesis and go all the way through to the book of Revelation. Of course, that'll take forever, uh, but, you know, we've got time. So um, we're going to be- begin there, and today, of course, then we're going to begin our introduction to the book of Genesis. But before we do that, let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Father, as we embark on this journey through the Bible, I pray that uh, you open our eyes to your truth, that it's not just an academic thing, uh, but rather we are able to understand your word more clearly. Uh, We're able to understand some of the debates that go on uh, in the academic realm and and perhaps be guarded uh, against uh, anything that might be false. And, uh, and I pray that ultimately we'll apply these things to our lives so that we might glorify you in all things. Uh, Lord, I pray that we, we come to the scripture with an open mind, not thinking we already know, but rather letting it speak to us, uh, open up the context so that we might see things more clearly, and therefore know what you have spoken more clearly in order to glorify you. Lord, as in all things, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son that stands at the center of scripture. And help us to remember that as we go through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, I mean, there are numerous issues to talk about when discussing the book of Genesis. Um, uh, Scholarship typically has looked at the book of Genesis in a very fragmented way. And so, although there are good commentaries on Genesis, and I'll recommend uh, a few they're not that great. And there's nothing really, I think, that in, encapsulates the actual message of Genesis well, because, in fact, scholars have been taught to just read it in a, in a fragmented way. And this began uh, really early on in the Enlightenment uh, when uh, a man by the name of Jean Ostruck uh, looked at Scripture and saw that there was Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And in Genesis 1, it seemed that, you know, uh, different words for God were being used. So you had Elohim used in Genesis 1, and then you had Yahweh Elohim in Genesis 2. And he theorized that maybe Moses had used sources, and that these sources uh, were each like a Yahweh source and an Elohist source and all of that. As scholarship went along, uh, you had people like uh, Wellhausen and different scholars that postulated that there were Different sources used the Elohist and the Priestly and the uh, the Yahwist and eventually the, the Deuteronomist. And then as scholarship went even further along, it started noticing particular characteristics of the Elohist and maybe well, there was an Elohist one and an Elohist two and and maybe there was you know a Priestly source, but then there was also a different Priestly source and there's like the Holiness source, all these different sources. And then there's a redactor that puts them together and there's like a redactor one and a redactor two. And in the end, we, we end up with a big, huge mess. No one really knows uh, what sources are used and all that sort of thing. Everything's a theory. If you read something like Von Rod's commentary on Genesis, it's basically he deals with the Yahweh stuff separately from the Elois stuff and the Priestly and all that. And it ends up being just a chaotic mess. Um, Von Rod himself also was into something... Uh, um, 
to where uh, you're, you're something called form criticism to where you're trying to figure out the original setting, the zitz and laban of these uh, texts or whatever. So there's tons of speculation then put on these texts, tons of context through speculation in what's called the diachronic method to where you go throughout history and you try to like figure out what may have given rise to this source and all that. No one's really looking at the text, or at least they didn't. Uh, there's more and more people are looking at the text now as a literary whole and seeing uh, that there, it's actually a unity and it's, it's speaking you know, toward uh, the Israelite community as a holistic message. And, um, and that's important because, look, we don't read Shakespeare in trying to figure out what Shakespeare may have used in history and then getting you know, a speculative background for where that source may have come from. What a waste of time. If we're asking what Shakespeare meant to write in a book, then we look at the literary book as a whole, and we don't, we don't pay attention to uh, what he may have used in history. It's a fallacious methodology when it comes to words, and it's a fallacious methodology when it comes to uh, studying these larger passages. And so what, what happened, though, ultimately, is the reason why scholarship really got into this is not only because they were trying to figure out if the Bible had sources, but because the Enlightenment was always producing an apologetic against Christianity. It saw Orthodox Christianity as its primary foe. In fact, it was really erected to attack Christianity. So anything it could use to undermine the Bible, which of course is the source of Orthodox Reformed Christianity, um, it would use. And so source criticism, form criticism, all these things were used as an apologetic to say, oh, see, look at that. That's, uh, God couldn't have written it. It's just written by men. And it's, you know, it's just a conglomeration of all these sources and whatnot. Um, and of course, other things were used, like you know, evolution is then brought out. And then you have the whole what's called pan-Babylonianism, where everything in the Bible was seen as just copying Babylonian ideas or whatever, which has now been debunked. Uh, even though it interacts with Babylonian ideas, and we'll talk about that. Genesis interacts with the Babylonian doc document in particular that we'll talk about. But, um, but it doesn't copy it as though it's the same ideas. And so it's using the worldview and different things, but it's not, it's not copying it. Um, here's the issue with the source thing. Does it have anything to do with inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible? Here's the problem. Fundamentalists get caught into this debate because liberals use the argument that the Bible was a bunch of sources and it was man-made and all that to somehow attack Orthodox Christianity, fundamentalists get drawn into that and they're like, oh, well, we got to protect that because if it's a bunch of sources, then so suddenly it's not inspired and inerrant uh, from God. Um, that's a non sequitur. It actually absolutely has nothing to do with whether the Bible is inspired or inerrant. Uh, it doesn't matter... Uh, who, what, what sources are used? Luke uses sources, right? Is Luke uninspired and not inerrant? The Bible can use sources. It doesn't matter how the human puts it together. And this is also true when it comes to dating the book and the author of the book. Traditionally, we think Moses wrote the book, right? That's kind of the tradition. Nothing in the Bible actually says Moses writes the book, though. And when you read the book, it becomes clear that Moses is not writing the book. In fact, he's probably not writing any of the narrative, in the Pentateuch, but we take, typically assign that to him because of tradition. And then we get up in arms when someone suggests that Moses didn't maybe write it, and we're thinking, well, that's a liberal position, because liberals in the past used it to where, well, if Moses didn't write it, then maybe it's not inspired. 
Let me make this really clear. My three-year-old could have written it yesterday. That has zero to do with whether God has inspired the book or inspired the Bible at all using sources or whatever. It doesn't matter what the man-made part of it is. It doesn't matter how it was put together in, in the human realm. The issue of in, inerrancy and inspiration has to do with whether God is speaking through it, if it's God's ultimate work in the end to his people. And if it is, then it's inspired and it's inerrant, meaning that whatever it claims to be true is true. And that's it. I mean, it doesn't matter how it's put together. It doesn't matter when it's put together. It doesn't matter who puts it together on the human side. God is doing it. So to get caught up in this debate and to think that somehow this has something to do with preserving Orthodox Christianity or on the flip side, liberals thinking it has something to do with uh, destroying Orthodox Christianity. Because I guarantee when your kids go in their classes, they're getting all of this and the, the professor thinks He's somehow dismantling their Orthodox Christianity by dismantling the Bible. And a lot of these kids think it too because they're not taught correctly. And when it really has nothing to do with it, the kid should say, oh yeah, maybe, uh, maybe that source is used. Yeah, maybe Moses didn't write that. Maybe it was written later, uh, maybe during the exile or, or a little bit before the exile. Who knows? Maybe after the exile. Who cares? I mean, it helps a little bit with the setting in terms of maybe understanding it, but ultimately you can get the literary message of the book either way. So what does it matter? Like, we understand that God is behind it if we're Orthodox Christians. If you're not, you don't think God's behind it. It has zero to do with the issue, though. That that's, it has to do with your belief on what the Bible is. So very important. I mean, there are things in Genesis that talk about how, you know, at, at that time the Canaanite was in the land. Well, obviously, the Canaanites are in the land when Moses is alive. They haven't been eradicated from the land until after Moses. They haven't really been eradicated from the land until David. And so, ultimately, uh, we understand Moses probably did not write the book of Genesis. What the Pentateuch does say Moses writes, it says he he writes about three things, maybe four, I forget what the fourth one might be. But uh, three things. The law he writes down, uh, most likely talking about the book of the covenant, uh, maybe Leviticus as well. The uh, the encounter with the Amalekites and the census, that is the numbers and all that of the census. Those are the three things it says he writes down. And they make their way into the book and the narrative or whatever. There's nothing that says he writes the narrative. And you might say, well, it's called the books of Moses or whatever. Well, yeah, but I mean, we call them the books of Samuel, but Samuel obviously did not write them. He dies halfway through. Uh, It's called Books of Moses because Moses is the prominent human character of the books, uh, specifically the prominent prophet in the books. Like Samuel is the most prominent prophet, even though you have other prominent characters like David and Saul. So uh, none of it has to do with inspiration. None of it has to do with inerrancy. That's important at the get-go for us to understand that. And it also, I think, the, the whole diachronic method to break apart the text and try to figure out sources is uh, fallacious, and we're not going to be doing that here, obviously. We're going to follow a literary uh, methodology in taking it as a whole, because when we see it as a whole, we see what scholarship has missed, which is the foundational theology and ethics that the book is trying to teach the people of God. It's completely missed by scholars. They have noted all the bits and pieces, so all of those are there, and we'll quote them along the way, but they've missed the uh, the overall purpose of the narrative. 
Well, Genesis divides itself into two sections, or we typically divide it into two sections. And uh, the reason why I think it's divided and we note these divisions is because I think there are two genres in Genesis, not one. And so if the first thing I said seemed controversial to you, the second thing is going to be really controversial to you. Um, I don't think what you have is just straight narrative in Genesis. This is after studying ancient Near Eastern histories for some time. Um, that was part of my degree. And so studying them, you can see there's a, a very much a distinction between what I would call and what scholars call primeval history versus just, you know, maybe what we might just call regular narrative or normative uh, historical narrative. And so what you have in Genesis 1 through 11 is what we would call primeval history. What you have in 12 through 50 is what we would call maybe normative historical narrative or just historical narrative. It's all historical narrative, though, and this is why I want to put something else onto it, like normative historical narrative. Normative meaning just that this is, this is the way that history writing is normally written when you're talking about the periods that are discussed. Um, primeval history is also historical narrative. It's talking about actual historical events, but it doesn't describe them the same way. So in primeval history, there tends to be a lot of cultural symbolism that is used to discuss the history much more than you would get in a normative historical narrative like you see in 12 through 50 or, or in the rest of the Bible for that matter. Um, it doesn't mean that the historical narrative used in the Bible, the normative stuff, is somehow like the history book you would read today where there's no theological or ethical lessons in it. The ancient world saw history as a means to teach theology and, and uh, ethics. And so it, you're, you're never going to get that uh, in the ancient world. It's not just going to be straight like this is what happened, then this happened, then this happened, as though it's just reporting this to you so that you can know what happened. Um, that's not really the, the sole purpose of historical narrative. Well, because there's lessons, ethical, theological lessons in it, primeval history does the same thing, but it, do, it uses a lot of symbolism. And so it'll use ancient Near Eastern ideas and concepts that you have in things like mythology or whatever, bring those images in, like a talking snake, for instance, to communicate something else, not to literally say, yeah, there was this talking snake in the beginning of the world. And so you have like these Jewish scholars like Ibn Ezra or whatever um, talking about how God, you know, originally made snakes to talk or something. And it's like, no, that's not the, the point. But when you read it that way, you start then reading, you, you start then thinking, oh, well, I have to read this literally, meaning everything's literal. There's no symbolism here. And I want to make sure that we understand actually in 1 through 11, there's a lot of symbolism used because it's not just meant to say, hey, here's what happened in history. Now, I do want to also note, though, but it is saying this stuff happened in history. It's just that the details are more symbolic rather than literal. But the events are actual events in history it's describing. This is very important. This is not just true in the Bible. This is true um, throughout the ancient Near East, especially in Mesopotamian literature. It's describing actual events. Everyone believes creation obviously took place, right? Everyone in, in all pagan societies, obviously they believe that they're here for a reason. Creation took place. But it's going to be described in more uh, symbolic terms. 
so the gods did this, and let's say, let's say they you know, took some clay and they ripped it up and then they made a man or whatever. It's going to be that sort of thing to where, is it literal? Well, no. Uh, but is it, is it describing a literal event? Well, yes. And th- this, this false dichotomy between, well, either the history happened or, and it's literally described, or history didn't happen and it, it, it's figuratively described as nonsense. You can have literal history that occurs and figuratively describe it. Um, so I, I say all that as we get into the book of Genesis that, that look, the, the symbolism is there to teach us something more than just history. If you've ever read the book Moby Dick, it's one of my favorite books. Um, and it's, it's clear that the, the book is really about God. It's about uh, what what happens when you are suffering and you end up hating God for the suffering and that it's just self-destructive and all that sort of thing. Um, the book throughout is just having these religious conversations. Uh, at one point, Ahab will say it's it's not really about the whale, but it's about the unseen force behind the whale. His first mate realizes that he's talking about God and says that he's committing blasphemy and whatnot. But we also, so there's a lot of symbolism in Moby Dick. Is the symbolism literal? No, it's symbolic to teach the theology and ethics. But is Moby Dick actually rooted in the historical event that occurred in a a whaling uh, event? Yes, uh, it is. It's a historical event. But it's now being used to teach something theological and maybe unethical as well. Um, that's the way I would see primeval history and maybe, maybe biblical history in general, that it's not purposeless. It's not, it's not atheistic to where it's just here's fact, here's fact, here's fact, and there's no meaning in the facts. And I have to describe this just literally as they, they, they come and I can't put any sort of color onto it through symbolism in order to teach the theology and ethics more clearly. No, the Bible's going to do that. Uh, it's it's going to teach it very clearly, and so it's very important for us to pay attention to that. So in that regard, Genesis becomes a foundation for the rest of the Bible in three ways. It, it becomes the historical foundation. Obviously, God creates everything. Man begins there. All of that's the beginning of all those things. So the, his, the history, of not just regular history, but history of all things, of course, but also the, the historic redemptive history, the beginning of God and his covenant with man and his uh, uh, acts of creation toward man and, and salvation of man and all of that. So that, that's the first thing. The second foundation it provides for us to the Bible is theological. And we'll see this as it comes out. Uh, as we'll talk a little bit about it today uh, in terms of it's, it's going to pro- tell us what God is doing in the world. Um, the third thing is ethical, which is, we then, as God's people, how do we respond? What are we supposed to be doing in light of the fact that God is doing something in the world, what God is doing in the world? And so it has that historical foundation, theological foundation, and ethical foundation. and becomes an extremely important book. Extremely important. So... Um, I'm not going to get into the polemic. There's a polemic that's going on in Genesis. We'll talk about that when we do the ethical uh, portion of the book. We're not going to talk about the ethics today. Um, but I do want to talk about the theology of the book. So 
and we'll see the history as we go along. That'll be clear. Uh, that's the theology is a little bit more difficult to see unless you're kind of in tune with an ancient Near Eastern mind. And so, what you ultimately have is you've got Genesis one and two that uh, Jean Ostrich had interpreted to mean uh, there's different sources, right? But we would argue that actually those two things are different because they're playing off one another to communicate a particular theology. In Genesis 1, you have God presented as Elohim, which is the more transcendent view of God. The name Elohim is a generic name. It just is talking about the deity, the one who is in an unseen realm, uh, lifted up, uh, powerful, that sort of thing, and obviously the creator here. And, and so everything is presented as basically in a distance. You've got the whole cosmos talked about, stars and sun, You've got the, the primordial waters being ripped apart. It's a, a universal thing. Um, God speaks, so he doesn't touch anything. He just speaks with his word. He is more distant in that regard. So this is the transcendent perspective of God in view of creation. And as you go along, then, you see that God orders the world, and he ends up sitting on a throne, and so God is enthroned over chaos. There's no chaos that's a threat. This is God's perspective of all things. He has created all things. All things are completed. No chaos is present. He rules over all of them as the sovereign. That's it. Genesis 2 comes along, and now you get a different perspective. You've got a reordering of the way that things are made, and so man is made first. And you've got a flip on what Genesis 2 says from Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Genesis 2, 4 will begin with, and uh, God created the heavens and earth in the day that he made the earth and the heavens. Now it flips it, earth and heavens. So now you're going to get a perspective from the earth, and it's going to be perspective from man. And so it begins with creating man, and then it creates everything after him. Genesis 1, you began with everything else, and man's created last. Because it's from the perspective of God, not men. Um, from heaven down to earth, rather than earth up to heaven. And so uh, as the narrative goes on, you start to see that God makes things through touching them. He's involved. Yahweh Elohim is used. So you understand that it's Yahweh Elohim, same God that made the first one uh, in the first chapter. Uh, but Yahweh Elohim is the more personal name, Yahweh and that he is more hands-on, there's more of an intimate touch. And so this is the imminent view of God from man's perspective. Now, the narrative does not end there. The narrative keeps going. It doesn't end with God sitting on the throne and there's no more chaos. It actually ends with man rebelling against God and, and, and letting chaos enter even further into the world. And as you go along, then the narrative keeps going and going. And it's like, wait, where is God enthroned? Where is chaos thrown out? And it keeps going and going. And so I've made this comment again and again, and I'll make it again today. Genesis 1 is the first creation account from God's perspective, the transcendent perspective. Genesis 2, and then you keep going through the book, and then on throughout the book, and then on throughout the Bible, and all the way to Revelation 22, that's the second creation account, the rest of the Bible. And you don't get that throwing out of chaos and God being enthroned until Revelation 21-22. And so that's the second creation account. That's very important to understand for the book. The book is actually providing a, a theodicy, 
a reason why there's evil still in the world, why, why there's chaos in the world. And the answer the book provides is that the reason why there's still chaos in the world, the reason why you're still suffering, the re- reason why the world seems incomplete and not, not complete is because it is incomplete. The reason why you seem incomplete is because you are incomplete. Because you are not existing in a world that has been created. You are existing in a world that is being created. And that's very important to understand. God isn't done. You're in the process of creation. You're in day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. You're not on day seven yet. Day seven's in Genesis 1. You're in Genesis 2 through Revelation 22. That's where you live. That's where the Bible is. That's why all this chaos exists. And so the book itself is going to ask this question in a very more subtle way when you get to the Abrahamic narrative. When you get to the Abrahamic narrative, God comes to Abraham one day and he tells him, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They're wicked. I'm going to wipe them out. Abraham questions God's goodness. And he basically says, should not the judge of the earth do what is right? Implying that he's not doing what's right. And there's this narrative that ensues uh, between them that that Abraham says, look, if there's 50 righteous people, will you spare it? And God says, yes. And they they go all the way down, right? And they get down to, I think they get down to about 10 people. I could be wrong. I I always forget the number, but I think it's 10. And and God says, yeah, if I find 10, then I, I won't destroy it. Then, then he actually goes through the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah, and you find out by the end of the narrative that basically there was only one righteous man in the city. That's it. Not ten. Not nine. Not three. Not two. Just one. His daughters come out with him, but you later find out, I mean, they commit incest with him by getting him drunk and all that. But Lot himself is actually seen as a righteous man in Genesis and throughout the Bible. Um, he's seen as a victim of that whole thing with his daughters. So you have one righteous man. And the purpose of the narrative is to say that Abraham, who thinks he's more righteous and better than God because he would have done it this way, it ends up saying that actually Abraham is less righteous than God. So the most righteous man who thinks he's the most righteous and more righteous than God is less righteous than God because he would have only saved 10 righteous men and then let all the wicked go. But God actually will save even one righteous man and not leave the wicked unpunished. And the point of the narrative is to argue that God is good. And therefore, since God is good, uh, if there's evil in the world, it's not because God isn't good. Then throughout the Abrahamic narrative, God is called the Almighty, El Shaddai. Uh, he is the most high God. He is the, he is the, the almighty. He's all powerful. Nothing is impossible for God. That's the statement made in the Abrahamic narrative. So God can actually do anything. Nothing is holding him back. So he's all powerful. And what the narrative wants to say there then is that evil does not exist in the world because God is not all powerful. That is the historic objection. It's the objection today that you hear from people. If God is all powerful and he's all good, then why is there evil? Genesis is answering that question. And it answers it by saying, because the world is not created yet. God is in the middle of it. Why do you see volcanoes going off? 
uh, either you know figuratively or literally because it's not completed. You're in the middle of it. This is this is your mom making the cake where there's flour everywhere and there's eggshells everywhere and it looks like a mess. And you might walk in and be like, well, what, what kind of cook are you? And it's kind of like, well, you didn't taste the cake yet because the cake's not done. You're seeing it in the middle. Same thing with all of creation. God is good and he's making creation through a process. And therefore, through this process of making creation... It's ridiculous to come in and say, well, this doesn't look like a perfect creation. Of course it's not. You're in the middle of it. Why would it be? It's not done. Why would it look perfect? Why would you look perfect? You're not done. In fact, we might say that God is really, it's really about making you rather than just making the world. The world is just a part of making you. And because you're not done, either by being born as a people or being uh, conformed to the image of Christ in the way that you should be, like you're not done, then the world's not done until you're done. That's why the world is done as soon as you're done, as soon as resurrection takes place, as soon as glorification takes place, then the world's done because it's waiting on you. And in that regard, the book of Genesis is is really glued together with what's called these toledot. Uh, formulas. There are 11 of them in the book of Genesis. Toledot is the word that we often have translated in your Bibles as generations. These are the generations of. Uh, but but there's an, there's kind of, it's, it's obscured when we translate it that way because we just think generations, oh, that's just people like, you know, uh, coming about or whatever. Ultimately, Toledot comes from, from the word yalad, which means to, uh, to give birth. Toledot means birthings. And we understand that birthings are connected to the creation mandate in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth, uh, subdue it, and rule over it. That's the end game. And so it's connected to the, to the creation mandate. And the, pro, and the flow of creation then moves with the creation mandate. As the creation mandate is fulfilled, so creation is taking place and moving toward its fulfillment. That's ultimately all the things that that Genesis are teaching us, theologically speaking. And so it's important to understand that provides a foundation for everything else that happens in Scripture. Because then we understand that what happens in the Exodus is creational. It's creation. The forming of God's people is creation. The the temple idea that you're going to have from Genesis 1 on is the cosmic temple and then the the localized temple as it progresses in the temple of the whole world. That's... (coughs) That's uh, creational. Everything God does in forming his people, the law, everything, creational. Jesus dying on the cross in order to ensure that you are unified with God and that you are made into the person you're supposed to be so that he fills up the earth with God's covenant human people is all about completing creation so that Jesus can say on the cross, it is finished. Not meaning that creation is going to be done right there, but that, that what has been done has just sealed it. We are now going to go for that renewed creation, which is what new creation of new heavens and new earth is. It really should be the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. That is the completed heavens and the completed earth. That's what it's all about. Everything, everything is about that. And it means everything in your life today is about that. Is about creating you, creating God's other people, creating the world. 
And so to ask, well, why is there chaos? Why, why are not all things ordered, either in the world or in me, is to misunderstand and to think that God's done and that he, he created everything like thousands of years ago or whatever your, trajectory, whatever your timeline is, millions of years ago, whatever it may be. Whatever you think it is, that's not what the Bible teaches. God did not create the world. Yes, did he initially begin those? Cre- yeah, of course. Well, we're here, right? I mean, creation occurred. But what I mean is, is the idea that God made a perfect creation and it was all done and then men ruined it is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God made the world to be created. In fact, it literally says in the book that the things he, he created to make, meaning that he created these things, but they're still in the process of being made. And we see that everywhere. And so to ask the question, well, well, you know, God, if God's good, then all this stuff would be perfect. There wouldn't be chaos is to misunderstand what God communicated from the very beginning. That's not true. In fact, if God is good and God's almighty and this is God's plan, this is exactly how everything should look. And that's why there's evil slash chaos still in the world. Now, that is missed by the majority of scholars. There are scholars who do uh, see it. You have like, you know, John Levinson who sees it. Creation and the Persistence of Evil uh, is a great book. Uh, it's a, from a Jewish perspective. But, um, but a lot of commentaries miss this because they're bogged down on discussing details of sources and all those sorts of things. And, uh, or, or they're, you know, they're, they're bogged down on, on uh, linguistic details, which is good. I mean, we'll talk about a lot of those as we go through because we'll go through the text a little bit more uh, tightly than we are right now. This is just an overview. But, but notice, though, when you go into the, the forest so tightly and you're just so focused on the trees, you do miss the forest. And it's important to understand that, look, if you miss the forest, who cares that you rightly saw you know, what a tree looks like and you and analyzed that tree? Who cares? Because really, the life-changing message is in the larger view of the forest. Again, we'll see how everything connects as we go through. Now, of course, I'm going to argue ethically, uh, just to comment on, on uh, briefly, um, ethically that the theology then tells us that, that since God is creating, then we as his images, those who are to join him in the creation mandate, are to join him in creation, and in joining him in creation, that means there's something ethically that we need to do. There's a certain way that we need to live. Uh, we need to then obey God's commands in Genesis in order to join him. And then we'll talk about those commands, of course, uh, that I'm obviously going to say is connected to the creation mandate. Um, but Genesis provides this foundation for us. It's very important for us to understand that things are not done. Things are still in the process of being made. And therefore, we look forward to the day when they are made, but we don't just sit around and wait for it. We're supposed to then join God in actually participating in that. Uh, so next week, we will begin Genesis 1, and we'll go from 1-1 on down. We'll look at the grammar. We'll look at you know, what it's saying. We'll, we'll look at different uh, issues in the Hebrew and whatnot, bringing it together, how it, how it contributes to this theology how it contributes to this ethic, and how it contributes, of course, to the actual history uh, that it, it provides a foundation for the rest of the Bible uh, for. So let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer. 
Father, again, we thank you for your word, Lord. I, I pray that uh, I wasn't too confusing with this introduction. There's so much to cover in Genesis, and I obviously can't cover all of it. But hopefully it will come out as we go through the book uh, at a, in a in more in-depth level. Lord, I pray that you are glorified among your people and that this message helps people understand who you are and what you are doing in the world so that they might also understand what they are to think about and do in the world. Lord, we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>